in your Bibles to the book of Exodus. If you are visiting with us this morning, uh, maybe aren't familiar with the Bible, uh, new to Christianity, we've printed the text for you um, on page nine of your worship guide. Um, We're going to look at Exodus 2.23 through the end of uh, chapter three, but I'm not going to read all of that. I'm going to read 2.23 through um, 3.6, and then we'll look at the rest of it later on. This is God's word. During those many days, the king of Egypt died, and the people of Israel groaned because of their slavery and cried out for help. Their cry for rescue from slavery came up to God, and God heard their groaning, and God remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob. And God saw the people of Israel, and God knew Now Moses was keeping the flock of his father-in-law, Jethro, the priest of Midian, and he led his flock to the west side of the wilderness and came to Horeb, the mountain of God. And the angel of the Lord appeared to him in a flame of fire out of the midst of the bush. He looked, and behold, the bush was burning, yet it was not consumed. And Moses said, I will turn aside to see this great sight, why the bush is not burned, And when the Lord saw that he had turned aside to see, God called to him out of the bush, Moses, Moses. And he said, here I am. Then he said, do not come near. Take your sandals off your feet for the place on which you are standing is holy ground. And he said, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. And Moses hid his face for he was afraid to look at God. Well, this world isn't what we want it to be. That's obvious. I think that's experience in all of our lives. And so we, we sort of develop these stories to help us see the world as it could be. Uh, a world um, where, uh, where the enchanted uh, stories help us to make sense out of the brokenness of this world. Uh, and one of the stories that we often tell ourselves um, is uh, the superhero story. The superhero stories go like this. Um, and I, I, think it's, uh, I think this just proves the point that we want to tell ourselves these enchanted stories because we know how broken the world is, that these are the stories uh, that are really making the most in the, in, um, on TV and in, um, in the movie theaters. And the superhero story goes like this. There's a great danger in the world. Uh, a monstrous threat that needs a hero, and, and only someone with great abilities can tackle the, the great and monstrous threat in front of us. The great danger needs someone with great abilities. But what I think is interesting about the superhero story, because you can sort of find that story almost in every fairy tale that's ever told. Uh, I mean, almost every, uh, every story follows this arc, great danger, great hero, great outcome. But what's interesting about the superhero story is that the superhero always has a major flaw. He has a weakness. In some way, he's got a helpless point. Batman's haunted by his past. Superman can't be around the remnants of his past planet. Spider-Man's naive. Iron Man's arrogant and prideful. What I love about the superhero stories is it captures this theme that the weak and flawed person is able to do amazing acts of deliverance in this world. And we can identify with those kind of heroes. That kind of story resonates with us. It compels us because we long to be someone who makes a vast difference in the world. And that compels us. 
But it's tough to reconcile these two tensions that we want to make an impact to the world and make a name for ourselves and do away with the wrongs that we see and yet we feel ourselves so inadequate. And so we need other stories to help us reconcile those two tensions. And the way the world reconciles those two tensions is by telling us how we can improve ourselves. And so millions and millions of dollars are spent every year on self-help books, on the latest leadership book that's come down the pike that promises to make us um, good to great or give us the advantage or rid yourself of your dysfunctions. But you see, in the kingdom of God, it's an upside-down kingdom where God makes flowers grow in the desert. He creates new things out of dead things. He makes, he makes, um, he doesn't create superheroes with exceptional abilities. He, he creates weak and flawed people through whom he, the great hero, does exceptional things. And so as we look at Exodus chapter three, we need to remember Israel's backstory They were his chosen people, God's beloved and chosen people. He had made a a covenant with them. A covenant is an ancient Near East. It's a formal relationship between a great king and a lesser king. A great king would come in and he would make a promise to the, the lesser king. I will be faithful to you and provide protection and deliverance. But what I need from you is for you to be faithful from me. Fidelity, be, be my people and I will take care of you. And the covenant would come with blessings and curses. If you're faithful, blessings would come down. Curses would fall down if you had broke the covenant and strayed from your king. And so God had pledged himself in covenant to his people. I mean, this is an amazing act of condescension that God would come down and bind himself to sinful, helpless people. But he does. It's an act of grace on his part. And he, he promises to Abraham, I will be your God and you will be my people and I'll make you a great nation and kings will descend from you and I will give you the vastness of the promised land, a land as we hear in Exodus chapter three for the first time flowing with milk and honey. I will be with you in your presence. But here's the problem as we start the book of Exodus. Israel had been in Egypt for 400 years and were enslaved. And so God raised up Moses, saved him from the genocide of Pharaoh who was trying to crush Israel because they'd grown to such a large number that they were a threat to him. Moses turned his back on Egypt at the ripe old age of 40 and he wanders out as he sees uh, uh, one of his own people and, and one of the Egyptians in a quarrel and the Egyptian is beating the Hebrew, one of his old people. He turns his back after growing up in Pharaoh's household on Pharaoh's empire and befriends and defends the helpless Hebrew. But his people turn on him and so he flees out into the desert. And now we pick up in chapter 3 and verse 1. Israel had been in Midian in the desert for another 40 years. Now he's an old man. He's 80 years old. 40 years he had been in Pharaoh's household. 40 years he'd been in the wilderness in in Egypt. And he's out tending the flocks of his father-in-law Jethro. And he happens upon the mountain in the area. Mount Horeb, later called Mount Sinai. And he sees up on the mountain a bush that's burning. And he's curious because the bush is on fire, but it's not consumed. 
And so he wanders nearby and he hears God call out to him, Moses, Moses, here I am. Take off your sandals for you're standing on holy ground. This is Moses' call into God's service. It's his call to ministry, his call to act as the one who, through whom God would do great acts of redemption. But here's the thing that we'll see in Exodus chapter 3 and next week and 4 to some degree that Moses is a very reluctant leader. He starts laying down his excuses to God. As far as he can tell, this is, these are just excuses full of, of unbelief. Where he, he questions God He questions God's ability to work through a man like him because he sees the task as God sets him out and says, I want you to go back to Egypt and tell Pharaoh to let my people go so that they could serve me. Moses looks at the task in front of him, the great act of redemption that God is bringing him into. And he looks at it and he says, this is well beyond my ability. But here's the stark truth. You will always feel inadequate for what God calls you to. Right? God is calling you to enter into the drama of creation, fall, redemption. A drama that required the death and resurrection of Jesus. And what God is doing in this world requires otherworldly power. For flowers to grow in the desert, from, from all of us to be saved from the sin that held us captive, requires something that none of us have the ability to do. And so when God calls you, he doesn't just call you to be part of that story. When you're born again and united to Jesus Christ and seated with him in the heavenly places even now, you're part of that story. That is now your story. But if that's your story, he's also brought you in. To be part of that story in other people's lives. And so what he's calling you to is you're always going to feel helpless. Because you are. We are. I mean, he's calling us to to be part of people's lives who are so broken that they have no hope. And that could be broken by an addiction to drugs and alcohol. Or it could be broken by an addiction to money. But we're all broken. And so God is redeeming. He's making flowers grow into the desert. And that is an impossible task. None of us are capable of carrying it out. But you can expect this. If you're in Christ, God is calling you to participate in this work that he's doing. And so you are going to feel inadequate. God could work apart from any of us. He created the world without any of us there. Certainly he can do anything he wants to do without any of us there. But he brings us into the drama, not just to be part of it, in our own experience, but to be part of it in the experience in the lives of other people. God could have brought Israel out of Egypt just by uh, crushing uh, Egypt, killing Pharaoh, sending his people out, but he, he brings in Moses, a mediator, one who would stand and be his voice. And one of the things that, that God reveals about himself in this passage is this, that he's a God who delivers He's a God who delivers and blesses his people. This is the pattern of the way he works in people's lives. In this world, he delivers and blesses. Verse 10, he's going to rescue his people from the oppression of Egypt. Verse 19, I know that the king of Egypt will not let you go unless compelled by a mighty hand. So I'm going to stretch out my hand and strike the Egyptians with wonders that I will do in it. After that, they'll let the people go. And then I'll give people this, my people favor in the sight of the Egyptians, and you're going to go out, you're not going to go out empty. They're going to give you 
the people who have enslaved you are going to give you their gold and their riches. Verse 21 and 22. You're going to plunder Egypt. Not only am I going to deliver my people, I'm going to go strongly bear my arm that Egypt will send you out with all of their riches. So you can understand why Moses was a little bit of a reluctant leader. What? You're going to do what through who? He's no hero who's boldly stepping out to take up the great things for God. He's, he's fearful. He's fearfully being crafted by God. And so Moses stands before the angel of the Lord. It's burning in a bush. And he begins objecting to God. And I think, I think these are four objections. We're only going to look at two, but they're four objections and three and four. And honestly, I think they're four objections that we all feel when God's opened up a door, pressing into someone's life, being part of, of seeing areas of our city redeemed for Jesus Christ, to seeing areas of brokenness and oppression done away with, I think these are all four objections that we generally feel, and they feel they go like this. Objection one, Moses says, who am I? Like, I have no credibility. I mean, look at me. You're going to use me? Objection two, they won't listen to me. Objection three, I'm inadequate. And then lastly, the one that finally makes God angry, I just don't want to go. So let's look at these two. I want to look at these first two objections because they're the objections of three. And then I want to see how God answers because it's amazing what God does. What he does is he brings Moses near. One author says he takes him to school by not equipping him with great abilities but equipping him with a great experience of himself. So first objection, who am I? Verse 11, who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the children of Israel out of Egypt? Now, not only is he like uh, inadequate for the task, but you remember he's got a death warrant on his head from Egypt. He had turned his back on Egypt and his own people saw him and ran him out of town by tattling on him to Pharaoh in the first place. Who am I? I've got all baggage in my life. Who am I that I should be the one that you work through? We'll never be useful to God's mission, really, till we start here. I mean, and we are never useful to the mission of flowers in the desert until we start with who am I? God's method of schooling, as I said, often is different and takes much longer. He trains, God does, in the school of affliction. Moses had been in, East, in Midian, sorry, and out of Egypt for 40 years. Now, you remember in those 40 years period of time, the Moses that left out of Egypt was self-confident and brash. He jumped in, willing to do anything to protect the Hebrews. And over those 40 years, he loses his self-confidence and brashness. And now he's ready to be used of God. He's a place where he has no self-confidence. When I think the, to realize if you're later in life, this just should be so encouraging for you. I have no strength. I'm not you what I used to be. I lack the boldness that I once. Oh, this is, praise God, now you're ready for him to use you. As the proverb says, the glory of young men is their strength, but the splendor of an old man is their gray hair. 
you've been used, you've been afflicted by God. The older you get, you've just been afflicted by God more. You've been in his school and you feel your inadequacy. You feel you're lacking. You're not too old to be used of God. You're, you're precisely perhaps the very place where you can be of the most use because look at how God anticipates Moses' objection. Moses' objection doesn't come to verse 11, but notice how he anticipates Moses' objection in verse 5. He's already setting Moses up early before even Moses objects. He gives him an experience of his holiness for the place on which you are standing is holy ground. So take off your shoes. You can't stand here. And then he reveals himself in fire. Right? That's a, a major theme. Don't lose that vision of a fire burning in his first experience because the experience of fire is going to carry us all the way through the book of Exodus with a pillar of fire that leads Israel by day, um, by night in, the, in their wanderings to Sinai, to a pillar of fire, to a cloud of fire that descends on the tabernacle to show God is with his people. God reveals himself as fire because he in his essence is a consuming fire. Fire purifies, and it can't be controlled. Netflix has got an amazing documentary right now on the fire's uh, problem in, in California. And the thing that's just inevitably true is that they can't control the fires. Fire goes where it wants to and does what it wants to and consumes everything in its place. You cannot approach God casually. He is a consuming fire who will consume sin as he purifies the world. He can't be tamed or controlled or negotiated with. He's not a genie that you pull out of the bottle and get to do whatever you want. He is a consuming fire, a God who is holy and must be dealt with. And a holy God cannot be approached by sinful men until sinful men and women are made holy like God is holy. And so you have a choice when you approach him. You can either approach him in Jesus Christ to wash away your sin, forgive you of all your unrighteousness, make you holy so that Jesus then presents you holy as he is holy, gives you his righteousness so that you can stand before God holy, blameless, and free from accusation or he who is a consuming fire, you can approach on your own and be consumed. He cannot be controlled. He cannot be confined. And so Moses' response is appropriate the end of verse 6, Moses hid his face, for he was afraid to look at God. And here's how God's addressing the who am I question with this experience. Who am I? Moses, you're simultaneously nobody in yourself, but you're my covenant child. And so you have great status in my household. Now, that you've had an experience of fear, you have feared me and found that I have found you acceptable. Now, now you're ready to go and confront Pharaoh because if he rejects you, you still have me and all of my consuming fire lovingly embracing you. Second objection, they won't listen to me because I don't have any credibility. Verse 13 Moses says to God, if I come to the people of Israel and say to them, the God of our fathers has sent me to you, and they ask me, what is his name? What shall I say to them? And this is where God just um, lays down his covenant name. I am 
That's what you're to tell them. The ancient Hebrews used the equivalent of uh, four English letters, Y-H-Y-H, Yahweh is the way we pronounce it oftentimes. It's his personal name. Now, in the ancient Near East, to gain a God's personal name meant that you had control over him. But this is not a God who can be controlled. And so he reveals his personal name because he's a God who is a consuming fire, who is known by his people. And remember, as he asks this question, what credibility do I have? Why will they listen to me? He had been driven out of Israel 40 years before. And so it's understandable. Why would they listen to me? Our culture values experts. They ask this question. I mean, how many times have you looked at a problem in someone's life and thought, man, I, I think God might be calling me to talk to them about this. And you think to yourself, oh, they won't listen to me. Who am I? We fall and pray to the lie that our culture tells us that only experts can speak into other people's lives. I mean, we don't get invited to TED Talks. We're not out on the conference circuit. People with extended ed- education have all the credibility, but most of us are just normal people. But Jesus calls us to participate in an extraordinary work. Who am I? Well, I have Jesus, the name above all names. I have Jesus and his redeeming otherworldly power to kill sin and raise to new life. I have Jesus who himself has been raised and is reigning over all creation and then says, go with my authority and make disciples of the nations. I love what Paul says. Paul in 1 Corinthians 1 says it this way. God chose, this is the upside down kingdom. Who should, who are going to listen to me? God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world. Even things that are not to bring to nothing things that are. So God takes Moses to school again. To remind him of the drama that he's part of. This is what he says in 2.24 and repeats it again later on. He's a God who keeps covenant. So he, he calls him to remember. I'm the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. But what is more profound is the way he says it in 2.24. God heard their groaning and God remembered his covenant. Now it may sound weird for God to say that he remembered his covenant. You know, you think, well... But did he forget? I mean, is that why they had been in Egypt for 400 years? I mean, is this like when my wife sends me to go get milk from the grocery store and I see Oreos and chips and come home with those instead of the milk? And she's like, did you forget? And I was like, yes, you should have reminded me. I did. But the Oreos and chips were amazing. Now, when the Bible says someone remembers the covenant, it's not because it faded from their memory. To remember means that someone's now ready to act on a promise made long ago. It's not so much to bring to memory, but to act on the memory that is indelibly burned into his mind. And so God remembers his covenant. Now he's ready to act. And the amazing thing about him saying it here is that he had already been preparing Moses to act as the one through whom he would bring deliverance. He had been acting all along. 
And then in verse 16, he instructs Moses to go to the elders of Israel and tell them the God of Abraham, of Isaac, and of Jacob has appeared to you and promised to bring his people out of the land of Egypt. And he firmly reminds Moses in reminding him of his covenant that he's part of a drama of creation, fall, redemption. The God who gave Abraham a child when he was weak in old age, the same God who is at work in the world today. He's the same God who saved young Isaac from death and shed the blood of another. He's the same God is at work in this world today. The same God who took Jacob, the weak, deceptive, and greedy Jacob, and met with him while he was asleep and wrestled with him and changed his name into Israel and then blessed him. He's the God who keeps his promises and makes flowers grow in the desert. That is the God who is at work today. That is the story that we're part of. That's the drama that's being played out. And when that memory slips away from you and you get distracted by the brokenness of your life or the brokenness of your children's lives or the brokenness of this world, don't forget, God says, this is who I am. This is what I'm doing in this world. And this is how I'm going to do it. I'm going to use your efforts to bring about new creation. He's a compassionate God too. Love the way verse 2, 22 ends. It's remarkable because we can often find ourselves in the desert doubting God and he says, feels like he doesn't care. Exodus 2, 23 and 24. During those days, many knew the king of Egypt died and the people of Israel groaned because of their slavery and cried out for help. Now, it took 400 years for them to get to the place where they're experiencing their helplessness and cried out to God and their cry for rescue from slavery came up to God and God heard their groaning and remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob. Even when he afflicts his people, he remains a compassionate God. Verse 7 of chapter 3, I've surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt and heard their cry because of their taskmaster, and I know their sufferings. Now, when the God of the Bible says he knows something, he doesn't know it like we know it. Right? We might know like facts about history. But when God uses the word know, the Hebrew is often used for the kind of knowledge that a husband and wife have together in their marital bed, of intimate knowledge of passion and, um, and, and, and knowing one another. When he says, I know my people, I know them in their affliction, I'm one with them and I won't let them be this way forever. And so the God of all power sees, knows, and has compassion. I know their sufferings. Even when it feels like he's so distant and he's not at work. For all those years that that Dave Campbell, I'm just thinking about this, all those years that Dave Campbell, it just seemed like nothing was going on. God was at work. He had a plan that he was pulling out. He knew his covenant child, not giving up on him. Might have taken a while for him to answer. But there are people in your life that you just think, man, I don't think Jesus can do anything with them. Man, if someone had given up on us in that way, we would have been absolutely helpless. And so we need to embrace our helplessness.
because that's when God does his greatest work. So you're in God's school when you feel your weakness and then you'll also feel his comfort and then God works. I thought about this yesterday as we were playing in a golf tournament for the school and the format was a scramble. If you're unfamiliar with golf, a scramble works this way. Everybody hits their ball and then you go to the best ball and everyone plays from that spot. Now, the key to winning a scramble uh, is just to find the best possible player that you can find. Because then it doesn't matter what anybody else does. The, the, the scramble gives you an amazing amount of freedom. Because if you got your best player out there, he's going to put his best ball right in the center of the fairway. And then he's going to put his best ball right in the center. And you're going to play from that spot. You still get to hit. It doesn't matter. Your ball can go as deep into the woods as you could possibly imagine. It doesn't matter. You're going to play from the middle of the fairway. You can put it into the water on your second shot. It doesn't matter. You're going to play from the middle of the green. Because your best player, you always reset to your best player's ball. And the beauty of the freedom that the gospel gives us is that you get to take risks. Go ahead, swing away. Swing away in someone's life. Swing away with the most unbelievable thing that you could think God could do in this world, in our own city. Swing away into the lives of drug addicts and drug dealers. Swing away into the lives of the most self-righteous and self-consumed people and bring the hope of the creation, fall, redemption, drama that God is up to. And if you fail and you feel your weakness, doesn't matter. You always get to reset to the middle of the green because God is the hero without any weakness. He carries the team. He wins the battles So swing away and don't worry if you get caught in the woods. You get to pick up and play from the best places on the course because God is a hero and he always wins. Let's pray. Father, we would ask today that you would enable us, encourage us and empower us for the mission that you've called us to, to participate in the broken areas of people's lives and the most helpless places in our city because we know that you are a God who is on the move. We're humbled and frightened that you would call us into this effort with you. And so use us, help us to see lives being redeemed and flowers growing in the desert. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.